the Emerging Markets Equities Podcast by Aberdeen Standard Investments. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Aberdeen Standard Investments Emerging Markets Equity Podcast. I'm Nick Robinson from the Emerging Market Equity Team. In this podcast series, we explore the factors that underpin our thinking on emerging markets, from key individuals to evolving trends. We seek to answer the five W's, who, what, where, when, and why, that are shaping investment opportunities in the region. Today, we're going to discuss renewable energy generation and how the green revolution is creating investment opportunities in emerging markets. To help me approach this subject, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Mubashira Bukhari Kowaja. Mubi, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hi, Nick. Very well. Thank you for having me over. It's great to have you here. So Mubi is based in London on the Emerging Market team, and she's been with the firm for 14 years. As well as running our Emerging Market Infrastructure Fund, she spent years covering the utilities sector, and more recently she's branched out into covering renewable stocks with a particular focus on Chinese companies. So Mubi is an analyst who has spent several years trawling through the very exciting world of electric, gas, water utilities. What first piqued your interest in pivoting over to renewables and how did you go about choosing the companies uh, to cover? Nick, so you know that one of the most significant structural changes that are taking place around us is this greater consciousness about climate change. So as an individual, I have been uh, following developments in renewables for a long time and been interested in knowing what's new. Um, But what really piqued my interest as an analyst and as a fund manager in renewables was uh, the fact that governments are taking a greater notice of uh, climate change and willing to take action to prevent it from, uh, from getting worse and worse. So what we have seen to date has been a big commitment from EU. They were talking about carbon neutrality targets since 2018, and they now have a target to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. But what was a bigger surprise, um, I would say, to the market and less uh, expected was the announcement made by China last year in September, when China came out with a massive commitment to achieve carbon neutrality by 2060. And I see this as a massive commitment because it has global importance. China is the biggest contributor to CO2 emissions globally. It accounts for about 30% of total global emissions. And also because this is a massive project in the sense that it will require trillions of dollars of investment. There is no one estimate which I've seen which is a consensus on how much investment is required to achieve this objective. But one thing which is certain and I'm very sure about is that there will be a few sectors that would win and renewables would be at the top of that list. So just to put this into a bit of context and give you a sense of what type of growth we're talking about in terms of magnitude, um, expectation is that solar installations can see growth of about 14 times in China by 2060. And wind will also follow with about seven times growth in wind projects. So this is massive growth that we that we will be seeing. So this announcement from China came as a surprise. Um, it is more recent. But this direction that they have now chosen for themselves, they've been on it for a number of years. They've been on this path. And this is very um, visible when you see that the global renewables value chain is already dominated by China. And this is both in the case of solar, in the case of wind, uh, so renewables, but also in uh, other forms of clean energy like EVs. So this is very exciting. And this is a 
turning point for renewables um, in my view uh, as more and more countries are adopting targets to actually do something about climate change. And then you asked me about how I went about covering um, companies and choosing which companies to pay attention to. So that was pretty simple. And let me share with you two basic things which I realized quite early on in my work on renewables. First of which is that scale matters. You've heard me saying this plenty of times, Nick, that large leading companies have the financial resources to make the investment that is required to be technology leaders and to invest in R&D, to be ahead of the others and keep pace with the change in technology. And usually these are the companies that then consolidate the market as smaller players um, fall behind not being able to invest. Another thing which is really important is cost leadership. And this is a key part of the competitive moat in, in the sector. Uh, and here naturally vertically integrated companies have a natural advantage. So this is where I started building my coverage, my knowledge before I expanded into smaller and um, more niche sectors in solar and wind energy. Thanks, Mubi. And we know that renewable energy sources have been around for, for a long time. I mean, wind power has been used to power sailing boats for thousands of years. The photoelectric effect, the physics behind uh, solar cells, that's been around for 200 odd years. And you mentioned how governments are really beginning to get behind this transition to carbon neutrality. You know, why do you think that's happening now rather than, say, 10 years ago? So, Nick, you're absolutely right. Renewable energy has been around for a long time, but um, the big change in demand is happening now, and that's because of economics. So it's a simple case that the cost of solar and wind energy is now low enough for it to compete effectively with traditional forms of energy. If you take the example of solar energy, for example, in the last decade, the cost uh, of solar energy fell by about 82%. And if we look at the estimate of international renewable energy agency, then it is estimated to uh, be possible that and there we can see another 40% decline in solar energy costs this, in this decade. So this means that the attractiveness for the consumer will grow um, as costs will come down. The attractiveness for businessmen to, uh, will increase to invest in, in solar farms and wind farms. And the need for government support in the form of subsidies will, will be eliminated um, in more and more countries. And that would allow really for the sector to flourish without government support being a burden on the government. Thanks. And I, I understand that a big part of that cost decline is due to improving efficiency of, of solar cells. And I think, you know, when, when I was doing my research for this podcast, I, I was reading that the first photoelectric cells produced in 1870 had about 1% efficiency. And then, you know, my first experience of solar cells, which would have been the uh, solar cell on a solar powered calculator in the 1980s, that had about 5% efficiency. Um, so where are we today in terms of the efficiency of, of solar cells and how do you think that's likely to evolve? In terms of efficiency for solar cell, this is important because the efficiency of a solar cell determines the electricity which is generated by a solar panel and in turn this by the solar farm. So it is important. Um, and this has, is one of the things which um, has actually led to the big cost declines that we have seen uh, to date in solar and which will lead the cost declines going forward. So it is quite important. Um, the current mainstream um, solar cell efficiency is about 23.5%. And um, I would say that based on trend analysis, um, expectation is that this can improve by about 1% every year before it reaches the theoretical limit, which is considered in the industry to be about 29%. 
Now, I would say this is a theoretical limit because there can be changes. So one thing is that the material which is used to make solar cell, which is currently polysilicon, that can change. There can be innovation around what material to use because polysilicon also places limitation on the, uh, the, on the level of efficiency improvement that can be made. And second thing is that cell technology is, um, there's a lot of R&D on it. There are at least three competing technologies that the industry participants are currently researching upon. So there can be advancement in cell technology and that will certainly result in uh, efficiency improvement as well. So currently the limit that is um, understood to be is 29%. We can see upside here potentially in future. Okay, thanks. And so with that efficiency of 29% which which potentially could improve i mean how does that impact the the balance between kind of wind and solar going forward given given that potential for improvement so like let's take a step back in looking at the last decade if we consider the efficiency improvements in solar cell then it has improved from about 15% to 23.5% and that was certainly the key driver behind the cost reduction of 82% that we talked about in solar energy over the last decade. There were also other factors like reduction in raw material cost, but this was the main factor. Now, how would that impact total cost of generating electricity from renewables? This we need to answer in the context of where we are in the world, because whether wind or solar is cheaper, uh, depends upon uh, the location. In some countries like Brazil, wind energy is actually cheaper than solar energy. And uh, hence, um, the share of wind energy in, in energy mix is higher than solar. But generally speaking, looking at global trends, solar energy is cheaper than wind energy and also expected to lead cost reductions going forward, as was the case in the past. So in terms of the balance of wind and solar energy, if we look at renewables, including nuclear today, then about 35% of global um, energy comes from renewables. And this will certainly increase um, over, over the next couple of years. In most uh, parts of the world, I said that solar energy is cheaper, but we need to remember that the solar that the sun doesn't shine 24 hours a day, and it certainly doesn't shine uh, all throughout the year. So wind energy needs to complement solar uh, and other forms of energy. Uh, if we look at the example of China, um, then at the end of 2019, solar energy was about 3% of the energy mix. And going with the estimates from Bernstein's research, this will grow to 35% by 2060. And wind energy was at about 6% of the energy mix, and it is expected to go to 28% by 2060. And this is an estimate which I found was in the middle of the range, so it can be higher or lower, but this gives you an idea of the mix that yes, uh, solar will grow to a bigger share than wind because of the um, the cost dynamics being a bit more favorable. Yes, it's a it's a good point. But even a hundred percent efficient solar cell isn't going to be much use at night. Where do you think the best opportunities are in the value chain? Are solar and wind farms a good way to play this, or do you prefer the actual equipment manufacturers? So in China, I certainly have a preference for the value chain over the farm operators. And that's mainly for two key reasons. The first is that returns are much higher in the value chain than for the 
final farm producers because they have more operational risks. In the past, they've also had uh, issues with collection of subsidy from the government and have faced heavy delays. This will not be an issue going forward because subsidy in China is ending for solar this year and wind as well. But still, their returns would be lower than what the value chain enjoys. And that's because of higher concentration of market share that some of the bigger leading players um, enjoy. Uh, the second reason is that companies in the value chain are global companies. So there are many examples where Chinese companies are global companies. This is We can see this most clearly in the solar uh, wafer segment, uh, which is used to make so the solar panels, that 91% of the world's uh, supply of wafer is coming from two Chinese companies. So the point being that these are global companies, they are not just dependent on growth and demand in China as the farm operators would be so that's also um, a key reason why i like them okay so yeah i mean so there's a, obviously a huge amount of innovation coming in the renewable space at the moment i mean what are we seeing from the more traditional side of the energy matrix at the moment in terms of the big oil producing companies have you seen much effort for them to pivot towards more renewables to be part of this energy transition yeah, so this is an interesting point, Nick, because in, if we were to think about who is the one loser from this technology change and this transition towards clean energy, then I think we would um, uh, mostly think about the oil industry. Um, but one thing which we have observed and more clearly in the developed world, but also now more and more in the developing countries or the emerging markets is that oil industry is also looking to get a piece of the action. If we talk about China, then it's a growth market for offshore wind. So here I can share with you the example of China National Offshore Oil Companies or SINOC as it's more commonly called. They plan to invest 3 to 5% of annual capex in wind projects and they've already started their first offshore wind project which will be about 300 megawatt in size. And then another big company in China, Oil and Natural Gas Corporation or ONGC, they also plan to invest $16 billion in renewables. And in fact, by 2040, their target is to have 5 to 10 gigawatt of renewable capacity. In comparison, developed market oil companies are much more aggressive. If you look at British Petroleum, for instance, BP, then by 2030, they plan to have 50 gigawatt of capacity in wind and solar energy. So much more ahead and much more uh, aggressive in investing in renewables. I'm sure the oil companies in, in emerging markets will also pick up their pace as um, as we go ahead. Yeah, and presumably not all governments are completely supportive of this move. You would imagine places like Russia, perhaps, there's some resistance to a reshaping of domestic economies away from their more successful areas. I mean, has that been the case? This is totally true. And um, in the case of uh, Russia, it's also very visible, this resistance and this lack of enthusiasm if we look at the policy at government level. And um, this is shocking because renewables are only 0.1% of the energy mix. But if you ask me, I would say it would become a priority sooner rather than later. And the key reason for that is that Russia is facing a very serious climate change issue. It is warming at two and a half times faster than the rest of the world. And what this means for the domestic population, for the domestic economy is that there is an increase in air pollution, there are more wildfires, droughts have become more common, and also there is permafrost damage. So all of this will eventually hurt their GDP growth, uh, if not already uh, starting to show signs of cracks in the economy. So Russia is not just vulnerable to this change in, in clean energy transition or this change in climate change because 
of uh, the dependence on oil exports, but also because of reasons that go much far beyond. Yeah, I think one of the countries that impresses the most in terms of renewables is is Brazil. You know, in Brazil, 80% of electricity generation comes from hydroelectric power from their rivers. Uh, most small cars in Brazil can run on either ethanol or gasoline. You know, given how advanced Brazil is in this area, have you seen many investment opportunities there? Yeah, Nick, so you have lived in Brazil, so you know this better than me, that Brazil certainly is um, a standout in renewable space, particularly in Latin America. And there are some very established wind farm operators there like Gomega Gerarco, which is a newly listed company. Uh, it listed in 2017, but it has been in operation for over a decade and they have a history of, of generating high returns for their investors. And then we ha also have um, equipment manufacturers like WEG, uh, which uh, has been listed for a longer time and it, it supplies um, high quality equipment for the wind farm um, operators um, and it continues to please investors with their operational results. Another good thing about the Brazilian stock exchange is that there are a number of IPOs which are expected and there are quite a few in the renewable space. So recently we had the IPO of IRIS, which makes wind blades, which are used in wind farms. And we expect to see a number of other renewable companies coming to the market this year. So th this means that investment opportunities will only continue to grow, which is a very positive sign. Okay, well, on that optimistic point, I think that's a good place to wrap up this podcast. So many thanks to my guest, Mubashira. Thank you, Nick. And thanks to everyone who took the time to listen in. If you enjoyed today, then please download our other podcasts from our website or wherever you normally get your podcasts. Watch out for our next episode and tune in. Thank you for listening to the Emerging Markets Equities Podcast, brought to you by Aberdeen Standard Investments. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more great content, visit AberdeenStandard.com. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen Standard Investments. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns. Return projections are estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.